0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we specialize in helping clinicians in private practice apply a BPS approach and become the clinician that they want to be. So we're excited to be hosting Lars Avemarie in Sydney next week and Melbourne the week after. So if you're keen to get your CPD points for the year and have some deep and meaningful chats with a group of clinicians, head on over to our website, tkex.com org. So today I am lucky to have Frances Brown, owner and founder of FKB Physio, to share her story and experiences as a clinician and a business owner. Francis is a physiotherapist based in Brisbane with a ton of experiences and we're going to chat a little bit about misinformation, advice for clinicians and also for clients, some common challenges with working uh, out in the field of private practice and how to manage patient expectations of physio and what that is. So Francis, first of all, thank you for making the time for us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I feel very honored that you asked me.
0: <laughs> so the common question, the it's um, the Peter O'Sullivan question. What's mm-hmm. your story?
1: <laughs> um, okay, my story is that, as you said, I'm a physio from Brisbane. Um, I graduated in 2010, um, undergrad and worked in private practice for three years Brisbane and then oh, two years in Brisbane, three years in Melbourne, got pretty disillusioned, Um, thought it was probably the wrong career choice for me and decided to move to the UK and do like a working holiday thing and s- still worked as a physio there but for the first time then got to work in a different setting. I've always worked in musculoskeletal outpatients. I still did that in the UK but it's just a little bit different over there. And it made me love it again. Then I found Adam Meakin's blogs around about that time as well, which really helped everything. And then I moved to Kuwait in the Middle East um, and worked in a gym there and continued to do physio there. But in Kuwait, because I was the only physio to start off with, I was able to do it 100% my way. I also got to work in a gym for the first time, which has always been my secret dream because I love the gym and that whole kind of story to that point gave me an idea of how I wanted to practice and what I wanted to create when I eventually came home so I came home because of COVID like literally 13th of March 2020 thought it was for two weeks but here I am two and a half years later I guess Um, and uh, yeah I did a little stint working for Queensland Health in a neuro rehab kind of role just as a COVID thing and um, it was awesome but it gave me it gave me a bit of an insight okay here's an option to not work in private practice the thing that burned you out the other option is government kind of job and I had the taste of that and I thought this is good but I really want to start my own thing so I decided to start my own thing in I guess July 2020 and here we are. I'm here two years later and it's all going well.
0: <laughs> That's so cool. And, and what a journey over three countries practicing. So imagine um, different yeah. settings and contexts over that time yeah. span. Um, and you, you mentioned you were a bit disillusioned at the start and wasn't kind of the work that you were expecting or like tell us more how, how that process mm-hmm. and what that experience was like initially in private practice land.
1: I think the reality is when I graduated, I was, I guess, it must have been 22. And back then, I mean, it was only like, what, 11, 12 years ago, but there wasn't much social media and it was very, very self-directed. And so it was kind of like, oh, you learned this stuff at uni. Okay, go. You, you figure it out on your own. And the first day at work, you're in a room with a patient who's paying you money and I remember thinking, oh, but at uni, we never actually put the steps of the consultation together. Like the thing where you do the assessment, the like subjective, objective, and then treatment. We never actually did them all in a row and had to manage a time and all those things. I'd never done that. And the first time I ever had to do it, I was getting paid by somebody directly. Like it was very confronting. And as a 22 year old, I wasn't like some of the 22 year olds I've met in the gym here. I was unsure and quite nervous really so I found it and I'm a perfectionist so the idea that people were paying me for money that I paid money f- for me doing something that I didn't think was that good it was so stressful Um, and then there wasn't really much direction in either of my workplaces towards being a better physio the questions we got asked most of the time was why hasn't someone rebooked or why did you only see that person one time or KPI based? I would say no one ever checked my physio work ever. Uh, The first time that happened was when I was in the UK. (laughs) And I do think it's probably, I guess it's different for EPs a bit, but like, I feel like as physios, we should have to go through the hospital system first because there's directed targeted learning in there which I experienced in the times in the UK and then when I worked for Queensland Health I saw it and I thought oh all those things I had to figure out on my own over five years of private practice and found it really stressful and hard um, we probably could have been taught them if I'd had supervise really closely supervised practice for a year it's different now people like you social media bladder clinician project there's way more stuff out there But when I was doing it, yeah, and it was that and it was also just I got burnt out. Like I'm an introvert and a patient day of 18 patients in a day. It's like, nah, I can't face it. 20-minute consults I used to do. I just always remember Friday afternoons I'd have often nine back-to-back 20 minutes. I would be running. Like I'd think, okay, go to the toilet before because you're not going to be able to go. You'd see a patient be two minutes late and I'd be looking at my watch like, all right, they're two minutes late. So I've got to run two minutes over and then, oh no, I've run two minutes late with the next one multiplied by nine. What, my whole consult late? You know, it was just so stressful. So, yeah. (laughs) It's so
0: overwhelming to um, have that kind of environment when starting out. And I'm sure most places are a lot better now and able to prepare clinicians for it. At the same time, I can definitely hear your experiences being echoed today in that similar kind of feeling overwhelmed back-to-back patients not really having um, or just I guess seeing the value of um, the importance of having supervision of having clinical um, practice being reflected upon and um, not just the the retention focused Mm. uh, performance reviews which are still absolutely important Um, at the same time it's important to have maybe a bit more structure in clinical practice in in terms of frameworks and and how to apply like you mentioned um the objectives the subjective objective assessment treatments um yeah you're kind of thrown into the deep end aren't you
1: big time and like maybe that's an issue with uni as well and it could have just been the clinical placements I had um I I just definitely thought we never put it together and like The fact that you have to, I just remember thinking, okay, this appointment goes for half an hour. So how do I spill that half hour? Like how long should each component take? I mean, I don't know. I don't care now. But I didn't know that first day at work. I had no idea how to structure the time of the appointment. And I guess they don't teach you that at uni because every clinic's different. And it seems like an obvious thing. But I suppose I don't know who it should fall on. Like should that fall on the private practice? Should it fall on the uni? I don't know.
0: Yes, perhaps a shared <laughs> responsibility for uh, a lot of the parties involved. There's lots of layers to it. Mm. Reflecting back now, what would have been helpful and like for the new grads listening who might be also feeling a little bit overwhelmed at the back-to-back kind of environments in private practice and the demand to see 18 patients every oh. single day. Um, what what would be helpful in those kind of settings? You'd say,
1: okay long appointments to start with, like allow, and they might've done that for me. I think they gave me an hour for everybody in my first one. And then when I felt comfortable, I could reduce them. I think that's really good. Um, And that will cap how many you can see in a day. I think, I reckon maybe the first week you're at work, um, some supervision as in me watching other people with their clients and maybe very clear direction around this is might be how you structure a consult. This is if you're a brand new grad. Um, and probably a person directly mentoring me who would sit in on some of my consults, let's say like one or two a week, and they could maybe ask me which ones I was comfortable with that happening or something. Um, and then having like a one-to-one meeting maybe even every week to start off with to go through the patients that I was having trouble with. And like, it's hard because I'm so stressed if people monitor my work, I think I would have found it, it would be stressful. But when I worked at Queensland Health, that's what they did. They do this, um, they'd have that supervision. You'd sit down and you had to go through each patient. And I guess I got lucky. The, the ladies who were doing my mentoring there were very, it was non-judgmental. It was just a really nice way they it was it was good and i thought oh, i could have benefited from this long time ago um and yeah i think just approaching it non-judgmental as well like not saying why did this person only book once sort of just and allowing me the space to bring up you know i thought it maybe didn't go well with this person like let's talk about why yeah those things i guess
0: yeah that, so the main themes of safety and being able to um express struggles and concerns without feeling like you're being judged or that might, or feeling like that would impact your um, work or um, mm. how people perceive you as well yeah. And within the same private clinic space. I think there's a certain level of vulnerability that's needed in those spaces. Yeah. Um, looking back, I, I think it, it's awesome to hear how your uh, also your perspectives have changed because I, I often Um, work with clinicians who think they should have it all figured out by the first year out and so even with hearing your story you've gone into so many different environments and contexts and countries and places and now you've kind of come into a kind of an understanding of of what you prefer and that's taken a bit of time I think there's a bit of pressure in our culture or society to be like you know you you need to know exactly what you want to do and who your target marker is and and everything in the first year out it's like oh
1: Oh, no way. I think social media has made that harder. Like I said, when I first graduated, no one knew what anyone else was doing. Um, It honestly took me all that time. It took literally the whole 10 years before I felt comfortable to start my own thing. I think I'm slower than other people, maybe. my Social media might have made me think that. But, like, also, I am glad I took that long because... I I would also, if new grads are struggling, I would seriously recommend not even trying to go on your own for like a solid few years because you need, like, you don't know that thing about, you don't know what you don't know. And you shouldn't have to be thinking about how to drum up business when you're still trying to learn how to do the profession. Like I didn't know how to do the profession for a few years. I mean, that's selling myself short and I'm being perfectionist again, but it takes a long time to know how to put it pull it all together and kind of you know to figure out how to just do your job. And I feel like if you have the pressure of trying to get clients on top of that, it's very hard. I know some people can do it, but yes, I would not. If especially if you're stressed out, I would not recommend. I would recommend finding an environment where you can just focus on doing a good job.
0: yeah, the the priority um, of of learning.
1: Learn, yeah.
0: Yeah, rather than just initially getting business or getting Definitely. settled that way. Seriously. Yeah, can't do three things at once.
1: No. Yeah.
0: Um, there's one of the things that um, sparked my interest in, in your content, Frances, is how well you can explain and debunk and um, address some of the common like misconceptions and myths and misinformation out there. So uh, if we were to have an overall view, there's so much. We we mentioned social media and how that's changed the landscape and um, changed people's expectations maybe of what rehab looks like or what it should involve. Um, How, as us as health professionals, how do you think we should respond and react to the BS out there?
1: So it depends on when it gets brought up. So do you mean... If there's a social media account sprouting it?
0: Yeah, we'll we'll say we'll keep with online say clients come in with uh, they're following the influencers with millions of followers and you know telling them all these outdated uh, mm. pathoanatomical focused narratives. Um, yeah, how should we kind of respond to those claims?
1: Yeah, like I think it's really hard and I've probably even changed my opinion about this in the ma- past six months. Um, I used to think that we should challenge them directly, but I kind of, I feel like that conversation is very much for us as clinicians. So I really notice that the approach of challenging those things, it um often alienates clients because it's operating above what they're able to take in. And so for me, I, it's different for you. For me, I'm interested in my content and everything that I have. I want to direct it at patients. I don't want to direct it at clinicians. Um, and I, I love people that do because they're for me, I follow them, but I really kind of notice that the patients get kind of scared to put off by that, not all the time, it depends on how you do it. So I'm I'm less into that at the moment. And also because I've noticed it just doesn't get anywhere. Everyone just goes round in circles. So I've sort of stepped back a bit. The only time I will challenge kind of more widespread ideas is when a patient comes in and they've heard one and they have believed it and it is affecting them. I will make a reel for them. So I will make a reel and kind of be like, okay, I'm going to make this and either show my patient or hope that they've seen it because it it helps reinforce it. And I sort of think if I say it to them in the clinic and then they see me repeating it on Instagram or they see someone like me saying the same things, I think that it helps build trust. So I'm really trying to frame it these days as um, for the patient and trying to challenge it to help them. Yeah
0: yeah, such an important point of who the audience is in the first place and tailoring it accordingly and being aware that, yeah, it might not be helpful for the layperson, you know, regular human that's not as nerdy as us going through a page and just seeing a lot of the uh, aggression or like confrontational approaches. It's just like, it's not... um, they're not going to learn. They're not going to understand first and foremost. So it's in a different language. Um, yeah. So being aware of who your audience is as the first point and what would be most helpful for them. And then that can help tailor the content accordingly.
1: Yeah, that's, I, that's where I'm at right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, as I share your um, your changing, like, moulding um, approach to it. I, I used to be a little bit more confrontational and then realise, oh, who is this for in the first place and what would be most most helpful for them? And that always changes.
1: Yeah, it does. And I think there's that thing too, that if you, if someone has a really deeply held belief and you literally say the opposite, they trust you way less. Like they literally think you don't know anything. Like I've noticed that with, with some of the stuff I've said, the clients will think, oh, you obviously haven't heard this whole side of the argument, you know, nothing. And I'm like, no, no, I definitely know that side. And I've lived in that. And now I've come out to the other one, but they don't know it. And so I've gotten more careful how I challenge people in the clinic too. I really only bother if it's really detrimental to their progress and I'll really pick and choose what I bother to challenge. And I've tried to, come around like come at it more gently
0: yeah it's always so much more productive when it is in that curious Mm. like gentle compassionate validating way um as opposed to um not being aware that we're actually just really frustrated at the clinicians and forgetting that we're talking to the clients yeah
1: yeah yeah
0: um so uh, one of the 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 things that I really loved was your posts about the red flags and the green flags. Oh um, yeah. So and again, it's targeted towards patients and clients, and I've actually shared it with some clients, so it's mm-hmm. been really helpful for them. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, if we were to to discuss some of those red flags and say we're talking to clients um, mm-hmm. in their language, how would we, um, yeah, uh, explain the the concept of like. What, clinician, what to look out for with clinicians, with healthcare professionals. And I'm imagining like we're talking to even family, friends, colleagues um, to help them have some sort of filter for like what yeah. to avoid and what to look for.
1: Yeah, I think, and that's awkward because now I can't remember what I wrote in the post, but I, I, I did come up with it in my brain. So presumably I think the same things. I know that a big one is shame because I noticed that so much with a lot of healthcare professionals and whoever else, they will blame the injury on the person and that is giant red flag. And I, I reckon friends and family are probably the most likely to do it because they don't, I think, I wonder whether it comes from a place of um, people want to feel like they're doing the right thing, like it's safe for them to, people don't want to get injured They see someone doing something different to them and then the other person gets injured and they go, oh, well, it's because you do that thing. You shouldn't be doing it. And it gives them this sense of, oh, see, I don't do that, so I'll be fine. So I feel like they're the biggest culprits at times. Um, But you definitely get it from healthcare professionals as well, you know, doctors telling people that they shouldn't jump or that they shouldn't deadlift, they shouldn't lift or anything like that, I think it doesn't help because then the patient won't, won't seek help. I've had so many clients recently who said, Oh, I actually haven't, I've avoided physios for years because I knew you would just tell me to stop doing what I'm doing. And I'm like, no, that's not my, well, they've come to me going, I've heard that you won't say that. So I've come to see you. And yeah, I just think if someone, like I remember I used to not even want to go to the hairdresser when I'd like box dyed my hair myself. Cause I was embarrassed that they'd have a go at me. And like, I just think that that's, powerful. People don't want to be ashamed. So I know shame in terms of picking a clinician, if someone shames you, I think if they claim to know for sure anything with like real sincerity, like it's definitely, this is definitely why you got injured. We can say it's definitely this, you know, hundred percent for sure, like real serious certainty. I know that sounds like it should be a good thing, but you would know that can be a bit of a red flag.
0: Yes it's like the I guess it's more clinician centered narratives it's like about me it's about my knowledge and oh, um, you are hurt because of this and I saw that in my assessment yeah. so I'm going to you yeah. know provide you my prescription because yeah. I am the expert in this field it's like it's not really a, addressing the person and and treating them like a human they're just like a body part that or like you know a, a human who is incapable of their own thinking and it's their fault that they got into pain in the first place.
1: Definitely. And yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. Like that's exactly it. When I think we as clinicians want to feel like we know everything, right. And we are experts and yeah, that's, you hit that. You're exactly right. The, the, when a clinician says, oh, it's because of this and I can see it's because you walk, you know, weirdly, that is a red flag. I know it doesn't sound like it, but they don't know that you might've been walking like that your whole life and it was never a problem before it can make you feel really inflated self of importance. If you can pick up these little abnormalities on people and I have to catch myself all the time. Um, I try to be more honest. Now I sort of say to them, look, I just had someone before, you know, we noticed that the way he was doing a, a lunge side to side was different. And I said to him, maybe it is relevant that your knee sort of moves like this on this side. I said, I wouldn't ordinarily think it matters, but you have come in with pain on the side that is moving slightly differently to what you would expect. So since we've seen it, we're going to try and change it with your lunging. Whether it's relevant or not, I'm not sure, but we've seen it. So let's change it. Do you know what I mean? So I try to approach it like that and really say to them, this could be a contributing factor.
0: Yeah, it's (laughs) it's like not yeah that, that, that's awesome it's like it could be um it might be all these languages as opposed to like your pain is because your knee is tracking yeah. to you know too far out and so to correct it here's the plan and here's the solution that's like selling that certainty yeah um, even though maybe on the outside that might be what a quote unquote you know expert would be like or how they would communicate with the again i using quotation marks here confidence but yeah. it's like it, we can still be confident in that uncertainty, and for we can still um, provide people options of moving differently, as opposed to like immediately blaming one movement for their pain. There's yeah. like that linear cause and effect that yeah. we can't really say is the case.
1: No, and I think that's that is where the mistrust can come in because people that know nothing about pain or injury, let's say, they might learn something very sort of entry level, let's say like knee valgus causes knee pain. Like I'm not saying that's true, but they might see that. And it's like new information. I think, wow, amazing. And then they might come to see me and I might say, oh, you know, the way you're doing that's fine. And I'll think oh, she doesn't even know that like a knee valgus is bad. And it's sort of, no, actually, I've just thought about all the different possible things that might be relevant. And I haven't, I haven't included that as one, but I, I guess these days I bring it up to show them. Yeah. I've seen that. I have seen the thing you're seeing and it might be a contributing factor. Let's talk about it, but there's all this other stuff too. And kind of alerting them to, oh, well, it's probably this, 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 all of them. And let's just try and address the ones that we can easily change right now. So yeah, it's, it is a different way, but I feel like, well, hopefully I feel like I can at least still acknowledge that I've seen that the biomechanics and whatever, and we've noticed it together and acknowledged it's there, but then didn't blame it because then they go, oh, she knows. Okay. (laughs) She's seen that. It's all good.
0: Yes. And they might like get a, another coach, clinician, trainer, friend in the gym mentioned that they have valgus and you Mm -hmm. would have already addressed that and you would have like reassured them that that's yeah it might be a factor absolutely let's take a look let's go through it thoroughly um the this is also the other factors in here let's like it's complex there's more than one factor involved let's let's see let's test it out
1: yeah as opposed to like
0: demonizing that valgus or the opposite side of like not even addressing it at all like or not even looking at that movement
1: yeah because I think a mistake I have made is that I'll see it in my mind. I think, oh, I won't bring it up because I don't think it's relevant. And then someone else, exactly what you said, someone else will see it. And then they might say, oh, well, Francis didn't even pick that up. She's not even paying attention. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I definitely did. But so I think just saying all the things is good to give them a sense of, oh, we've looked at it all. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and that also covers like overlaps. Um, I think there was another point in your red flag post about marketing and using fear as a tool. Um, So again, that fear can be quite like it can have the outward appearance of this person knows what they're talking about. Yes. Um, But on a deeper level, it's more targeting someone's vulnerability of like, I'm in pain. I need a solution. I need a quick fix. So there's there's this kind of conundrum and, and dilemma of, like, do we use that fear in a helpful way to bring them in in the first place? And then we go through a different process of, like, actually, you know, there's might be other things involved. Like, to me, I find that's difficult to sit with. And I think that we can use other marketing um, strategies, but that's without my any marketing knowledge myself. What's, what's your stance on, like, how mm-hmm. we can market? What are some other ways rather than just immediately going to, to fear based models. Yeah.
1: I really don't like fear because again, it makes it seem like the clinician has all the answers and it really loses trust in the body. And I think it's funny, like in the gym, like I do powerlifting and I work in a powerlifting gym and I have heard people there say "Um, deadlifting safe and yes, it's good safe. And then they'll go, Oh, unless you do it wrong, then you're going to break your back. And I'm like, oh God, please don't say those words. And I'm thinking, it's interesting that you think that deadlifting, say double or triple body weight is safe if you do it right, that if you do it wrong, which presumably is going to be millimeters or centimeters different, all of a sudden it's wildly unsafe. And I think this is a straw man comes in here. Everyone thinks of the person in the gym YOLOing deadlifting. And it's funny because I get uneasy when I see that as well. Like you see this person who's not prepared not in the powerlifting gym. They're not prepared. They haven't really spent time building up. They haven't really mastered the movement and they're going for it. And I think, yes, well, I'm not saying that that's the right thing to do either, but that's the difference to sort of saying, oh, well, deadlifting is safe provided you do it within this one millimeter kind of thing. So yeah, I've definitely heard it. I definitely don't think it's okay because it makes the patient not trust their own body. I think that fear sells. And so I am sure that I'd have more clients if I used it, but I do not use it. Um, Marketing is hard. I've only just started focusing on it more because I finished uni and I do have a business mentors and they're very helpful. Um, I think trying to speak to the patient in the marketing and showing them something that they've lived so they see it and they go, oh, that's happened to me. Um, but then they can see that there's a different solution or not even solution, but a different option to what they've tried. That's what I tried to do in my little real play uh, role play reels. um, because the person might see it and resonate. and it has it's surprising though it it works pretty well. I've noticed that I almost purely attract the type of clients I want. I'd say less than five percent these days are ones that are probably not the type that I ideally get. I don't get that many who want the sort of old school physio style. So that's been good. I guess it's word of mouth as well. And I think I'm, I'm very careful to be very consistent. Like I do what I believe and I don't delve into what I don't believe because I want people coming to see me. They know what they're going to get. And so I do get people going, Oh, well I've seen physios before, but I've heard that your way is different. And I'm like, yeah, we're going to keep doing it like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You've, kind of uh, pre-framed or shaped the expectations. So then there's a coherence between that. And I I find like more of the fear-based way, it's like incoherence. So there's a bit of confusion and you might not get the people that, um, number one, are um, like your target market because they come in with different expectations and you might not be the right person for them. But in your way of doing it, people can resonate from the like talking about the patient's experiences and and like honoring that and using those experiences as opposed to hey you're doing this wrong or if you don't check these technique cues you will get into pain
1: yeah and like yeah it is it is hard and it is slower doing it my way and i'm only been able to do it this way because i have various reasons why i haven't had pressure to get really busy really quickly So it has been hard, but the thing is, I like part of the things that burnt me out in my old clinics was getting a new patient off the street who expected something that I just couldn't deliver and, or seeing a patient who'd seen my boss or something. And then I took them over and, you know, he had a certain way of manual therapy that I didn't use or whatever. Even now I get a bit stressed when people book in from Google and they haven't read my website and I'm always scared they might expect dry needling or something. Luckily, most of them have read the website and it must be worded well enough that they know. So they sort of go, oh, yeah, I got a bit of an idea from your website that, you know, we'd be doing this, this, this. Apparently the mentors said I should, you can make it even more direct in the booking email. You can like outlay expectations, which is a plan I have that I haven't done. But yeah, it's sort of like it's it's slower but it is much more rewarding and pleasant and coming to work is so much better because of it. So I'm glad I've done it this way.
0: Yeah. So the long-term gains are so much like they're worth the, the the weight or the, like the, the time it Mm. takes to build up that caseload you'd say. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I think the thing is I'm very, I guess I must have some personality factors that mean I Would hate it so much if someone saw me and I did stuff I didn't really believe in and they didn't come back. And let's say they saw someone else and I heard on the grapevine or whatever that the other person had done what I actually wanted to. And then the word would be, oh, well, Francis did this, 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 and that did nothing. And she should have done this. I, as long as if people say Francis expected this of me and she wanted this and the person didn't vibe with it, as long as I know that what I delivered was true to my values. I understand it won't resonate with everybody, but I will still walk away from it and go, well, okay, well, I did what I believed. It just wasn't right for them. I prefer that to me compromising on what I wanted and then that not working. And then, you know, I I want it to be, I want to be consistent.
0: And showing that authenticity. So you're like, you're consistent in future. If they were to want to come back.
1: That's right. And like
0: the long game as well.
1: And like, I guess two years in now, that's what I've really started to notice people that, uh people that I actually thought I'd done a bad job with that only came yeah once or twice when I thought maybe they could have benefited from a few more sessions or whatever they've cycled back and they've come back for something new or they refer to family member and I've discovered that they actually did like the approach it's been quite it's been really good so I'm very happy with how it's going at the minute
0: that's awesome and Uh, credits to your hard work and consistency over the time to build that reputation and brand within your community Mm -hmm. that's often I feel underrated the that you know unless you're in I'm just trying to play devil's advocate in my own reasoning if you're in a maybe a demographic or a space where people come and go then you might not have the same clientele Mm -hmm. or I guess pool of potential clients Um, but People generally live in an area and they'll stay there for a few years and they're going to get injured or get, have pain eventually and they, or they might need some advice um, health-wise just for a checkup even. Yeah. And they also have friends and family. So yeah. might as well just, like, recognize that and play that long game, think maybe yeah. a couple of years' time rather than trying to get your books filled right here, right now, respecting yeah. obviously overheads and yeah. financial pressures.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, there's so many factors about the the reasons. I think my situation is unique, as in the overheads are super low because I just rent a space in a gym and because I came home with COVID, um, I thought, didn't have a home here. So I went home to stay with my parents at 32 then. And, I mean, how many people have the opportunity to stay with their parents at 32 slash are willing to, but I did that. And so that's part of the reason why the overheads were so low, like, and this is not a cool or, you know, this is not an Instagram thing to say that like I live with my parents so that my business could work. But, like, I think it's important to be honest. That's what I did. I lived with my parents so that I had low overheads so I could set it up this way. And so it allowed me to do all the things and I'm glad I did it. And I'm grateful that I could do it as well. But, yes, now... I just at the point where I don't have to do that anymore, Yeah, which is great.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I love your your honesty as well with this. We don't often talk about, you know, the privileges that we have in our specific context. Mm. You get all the highlights on on social media. You don't get the background info of like how I actually got here and um, what are my advantages in this. Um, I, I wanted to touch on um, we, just to cover green flags for clinicians. Oh, yeah. um, I'm not sure if you've made a post specifically on this, but if you were to reflect back on like what you would recommend to to clients for what to look out for, Um, and I know there's a great network of clinicians around Brisbane and and Mm. greater Brisbane area. So, um, yeah, what do you look for as a clinician for clients? Who would you recommend? What would you?
1: Okay. I think that someone who takes their job really seriously, like someone who clearly is interested in the job they're in, they're not just in the nine to five kind of slogging away. And I suppose you might know that from they might be, you could tell from your in interactions with them that they're quite up to date with the research and things like that. Um, I would say empathy is huge. So they're willing, they listen really well and their understanding of your situation and they're non-judgmental. I think that's key. And then that they're willing to engage with a back and forth, like a conversation with you about what's going on. It's not, they're not just directing you to do things. They're big ones.
0: The essentials of uh, just honouring the person's experience and their choice. It, and I can see the similar themes of, um, it's it's almost at a, uh, it's almost contrary to, maybe the idea of what an expert should be like, or like the idea of what a clinician's role is of having all the answers that we briefly discussed and like being the expert and being confident and being directive. But you're actually looking for someone who um, shows that they care and gives someone space and time to number one show that they're listening and then also have that shared decision-making shared power in that interaction.
1: Yeah. And like, I know that it doesn't appeal to everybody and I have definitely had interactions with patients where they're like, well, shouldn't, you know, you're the physio and really not used to it. And I noticed it with some of my ladies in the exercise class when we're deciding what sort of weight to go up to or whatever, they'll go, oh, well, you're the physio. And I'm thinking, well, I say, but you're the one doing it. You can feel it. I can't feel it. It looked fine to me, but I can't feel what you're feeling. You know, they're just not used to it um and I I think it can I understand why people are scared of it because in clinicians are scared to do it because it does it, it is vulnerable for us and it makes you not look it can make you look like not an expert I honestly don't think I could have done it in my first few years out it's only you have to have enough knowledge and confidence to be able to show uncertainty well that's for me anyway um and I guess the thing is too, like, yes, those, I guess the first point that you have, you want to know they take their job seriously. It's if you had a clinician who was purely empathetic and patient centered, but didn't actually have great knowledge, that wouldn't, wouldn't really be that good either. And so they've got to have all the things. And as yeah. a patient, it'll be hard to know.
0: I know it's hard. It, it is. It really is hard to, uh, also figure out who is best for a particular person and that's another thing to uh, account for like the relationship building aspect and the therapeutic alliance that you you can kind of have a sense of based on networking and finding out and having a conversation with a clinician but then, then how they interact in their context in their space might be a bit different so yeah yeah. It'd be in my um ideal world, we'd be able to see how people practice, like be a fly on the wall and just have that like shared open, vulnerable space of being like, hey, this is how I practice. What do you think? That's let's, let's, you know, um look at what I could have done better. And then you can be like, oh, okay, this person practices this way. This is awesome. Now yeah. I know how it, he or she or they practice. But yeah. we don't really know. We only see like marketing know. and
1: social media is really good for it. And an example is a dietitian at work, Jono. He has this really good social media. You can tell he's expert on there. Like he almost uses social media to establish himself as an expert. And then I have heard him with patients. Sorry, Jono, if you ever listen to this, but it's not super soundproof, but he can hear me too. He's awesome. He's just, he's so empathetic. He's just exactly what you want. And yeah, it's good to have, you can, I got the vibe from his social media, what he would be like. And then he is like that. And so social media is a good tool. And like podcasts, you know, if, and that's, I guess, that's what I mean about they take it seriously. Like it is hard, so much putting out there, but it's a way to get an idea of how a clinician operates.
0: Yeah, that's such an important point for, um, again, a lot of new grads that are like, I don't know enough. I don't want to go on social media yet. And I can totally understand that. At the same time, it's helpful to just, um, put yourself out there and, and learn in that process and yeah. build your reputation. So then people can look at you and be like, oh, this person knows X, Y, Z. And there's like that trust built, even though you haven't met someone through their okay. social media account. Okay. Mm, but, and I think we can talk about social media for hours. So if if we were to look at some of, we mentioned some of the expectations that people come in with, and lucky enough, through your marketing and social media, you, you, 95% of people have um, mm-hmm. expectations that are easier for you to work with because they're based on your treatment philosophy. Yeah. Um, and then you still get maybe 5% that come in with different expectations. Yeah. Um, what, what would you say are some of those expectations on, on maybe on, on the whole spectrum? And how would you manage the challenging ones that we get of like, you know, you're, you're the expert, you're the physio. Just tell me what to do or just fix this pain away.
1: Yeah. So the most challenging for sure is people that are expecting lots of manual therapy and dry needling and, and a fix. Um, and then, yeah, and I guess people that might expect that the exercises I give them are like very specific and, you know, got to breathe here and point your toes and do all these specific things because that's what they've had in the past. So I try to meet them halfway. So if there's someone who come in and they're expecting manual therapy, et cetera, I will do it. And I will say to them, this is not the thing that will fix you. It'll make you feel a little bit better for a little while. So we'll do it. Um, and then depending on, then I'll sort of get them to do exercise at the end. And I think a big thing different about how I practice now versus before is that I will physically do like Sam prescribing three sets of 12 of like three exercises. We will do all of them then and there, all three sets. And doing that gave me heaps more confidence and being way more comfortable just exercising with people um, because I've got time in my consults as well. And so then we've spent this like solid 15 to 20 minutes exercising. Then I can say to them, you know, this time, next time, we'll probably just spend most of the time doing this. If they come back in and they say, oh, that thing you did really helped, like I keep wording them up and slowly wean them off it. Sometimes I don't bother, to be honest, because if they're getting better and pick your battles, I'm still getting them to do the stuff I want (laughs) Um, and I'm not giving any unhelpful narratives. There's probably been a few. Same with the exercises. I'll say to them, look, we're just trying to build capacity in a body part. At this point, it really does not matter if you point your toe, if you breathe. and." We're just trying to build things up. If that's how you've done it before and you feel better doing it like that, let's do it. Um, but I find that they it depends where they're at, but a lot of them will fairly quickly drop their preconceived ideas because they're getting better, because they're getting better with time anyway. Um, then they're like, oh, well, this is working fine, and they will drop it. And I do think there's probably some... I can only think of some because I haven't had that many clients over the two years overall. Um, there must be some that have dropped off. There was definitely a person that got really bad doms from the session. And I know she just thinks I'm <laughs> completely incompetent, but I'm, I'm pretty, again, it's a confidence thing. I don't mind anymore. If it was a lot, if I was losing lots of them, but I'm, I'm not. So yeah, that's what I do.
0: Hmm. Yeah. You're, honouring and respecting their their preferences and you're taking them into account. You're not just dismissing their Mm. expectations. You're you're working with them uh, and navigating that space with uh, different explanations. And also um, perhaps the thing that um, in certain private practice settings might be difficult to do is you do the full three sets of exercises with them as opposed to giving them at the end and showing them like, once as a demo and then that's it. So you're yeah. actually um, embodying that this is valuable and we're going to actually spend time in our session yeah. doing the exercises with me there, coaching, supervising um, and like helping, guiding you through that because this is really important. Um, you're not just paying lip service to, you know, say 30 minute appointment, 20 minutes of, of any kind of manual therapy and then five minutes demo and then five minutes exercise no you're actually spending a lot more time in that consultation on the exercises you're not just saying one thing and doing another
1: yeah and I mean the ones that don't come in I often ask them have you been to physio before and if they say no I don't even bother I will tell them this is what we're going to do and so I've worded them up beforehand and a lot of them will say do you think the massage will help or whatever and I say it might help temporarily reduce your symptoms if that's something you're interested in you could go and see a massage therapist they're going to cost less and have way more time and they're going to probably do it better than me and then I always say like you don't need it I am a physio and I wouldn't pursue that because I don't want to and you're going to get better anyway and so then they can choose you know they can choose
0: yeah and you're okay with referring on as needed so um Again, we're not uh, demonizing the manual therapy itself. We're just offering That's that cool. as an option and we're being honest and we're providing that option to the, the person experiencing pain in the first place. We're not like, yeah. uh, I fucking hate pendulums, but we'll say pendulum on one side it's like, manual therapy is shit, don't do it. Or the yeah. other side of like, manual therapy is shit. Um, no, manual therapy is like awesome and, and we'll do it and and I'll just do everything you say because, you know. Yeah. There's that pendulum analogy. Yeah, there
1: is. And I don't, I just don't have a strong opinion on it, really. I have known like you're an EP, right? So you probably wouldn't have, the problem is that the patients do fixate on it. And so even with all the narratives, they fixate and they think that it's what got them better. And it's so funny. I've had one, I've had someone say like, oh, Francis is magic physio. You know, she just hits all the right spots or something. And I'm thinking, oh, that's so funny that that's what you came out with from that session. But I know that they do. And so when I use it, I 100% know that they're going to fixate on it. So like I said, if I don't have to do it because they're not expecting it, I don't because I found, as you would find in your job, they do the exercises and they feel heaps better from them too. So it's just as powerful. Like I know that's one of the things. How do you moderate pain? Uh, It was as soon as I had those similar responses where the patient felt better in the session from exercise, I was like, oh, perfect because we can do I saw I think it was in your group there was someone asking about how do we um, like as an EP should I do some manual therapy course so that I can moderate pain in the first session and I'm thinking oh you can do it with exercise if that's what they want so and I think sometimes physios sort of go they feel so comfortable in the space in their clinic room with the treatment bed and they feel uncomfortable in the gym floor and I honestly think the thing where you physically do the exercises with them um, it will build your confidence. Yeah. Because sure now is. I'm the opposite. I feel so comfortable on the gym floor and I feel awkward in the, in the treatment room. Yeah. So it's, it's fully it's, gone 180.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, so acknowledging the clinical environment and the context that people are working within. And if they have more experience and they prefer more of the manual therapy option, that's still an option for them. Yeah, for sure. um, and if they don't have that, kind of space in their gym setting that's cool too and exercise and movement is also an option yeah and it's um and again we're going back to providing that option to the person experiencing pain and we're not directing or deciding Mm. like one is what you should do and another is what you shouldn't do yeah no cool hopefully that's that's helped provide the the context for um, the expectations. And then the other one is like with physio, um, the role of what a physio is. I know that can, can be quite different to the context, but what do you see your uh, clinical role, like identity um, as, a, as a person in, in your context, as a healthcare professional? What What is a, a physio? Because you get the expectations that, you know, physio is a treatment. Or a physio is an, an intervention. And it's like mm, so much can be so much more and we can be oh. quite flexible. What's your idea of what a physio is?
1: Oh, my God. That is a hectic question. Um, <laughs> I just think that we are there to help guide people back to what they were doing before they sought us out. That's it. And so what that looks like is a whole host of different things, but it is purely my role to work with the patient to get them back doing what they were doing before. And that is usually, I often think of it as like almost project managing. Like you there's all these different components that have occurred to make the person unable to do what they were doing before. And you're sort of trying to figure out what all those different things are and then address each of them with the person and so some of them are physical but a lot of them are other things that have happened like they hurt their back and so they've decided to stop bending or they decided they need to sit up straight or whatever it is and so it's also figuring out what what are the other things that have started to play a part in their situation and address each of them one by one
0: yeah we're addressing the whole picture and that might include how they move and how they behave because of the pain, what kind of protective um, safety behaviors they have. It can include some lifestyle factors, at least just having that avenue to talk about the stresses, the impact, what that means for them that they have pain for this long and the, the struggles and the grieving process. It's We're not you know going outside of scope of practice, but it doesn't mean that we only treat the body part and that's our role, and yeah. that's what we should do. I think For that's sure. the kind of limitation that I, I hear a lot.
1: Yeah. And I don't think, you know, yeah, I know that people who are straw man BPS approach are like, oh, we're not psychologists, but like nothing I do even feels like, you know, it, it's really not going on. I don't even know what the psychologist, you know, I haven't been to one, so I'm not 100% sure what even happens in that session, but. If someone has developed a fear around a certain movement, and you talk through that with them and challenge it, like it just feels so within the scope, so it's not trying to come. It's just I don't know, being human.
0: Yep. So again, it's it's having that avenue to to and that space to reflect on, um, what maybe some rules, some like rigid, um ways that we sh- what we should do like we need to do a certain treatment because that's part of our role um, and I get that with EPs that I help mentor it's like I should prescribe exercise to everyone oh. okay well what if the exercise is causing them harm or what if they've got some underlying um, issues that require some further assistance and maybe they're using exercise as a coping man, like strategy for something deeper so it's being aware of what kind of rules that we have and then just, like, having that space to reflect and be f- yeah, flexible. We don't have to do a certain intervention every single time just because we are an EP or a physio.
1: Yeah, you're definitely right. And I remember, like, when I was in my peak of hating my career, I'd sort of think, yeah, you, you're you right about how I'd expect people come to physio and we have to physically do something. Whereas if you go to the GP... The GP might provide advice and people perceive that as fine. They don't think the GP didn't do anything. If the GP just gives you some advice, I still struggle. If someone came, I would struggle to just purely give advice. Like it is really hard. Um, but there have been those few patients where, yeah, it's sort of like they actually bro need to do it, it's a more the managing of the lifestyle factors, is the main point. It is, it is hard because. I do. You're right that people expect the intervention, but you can. I mean, it it depends on the patient as well. You can kind of get a vibe of, especially some of them. They really are just like, look, I just want to know how to get back to doing what I was doing before. And if the advice is literally like, well, this, 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 do a bit more of this and a bit less of that, some people are fine with it.
0: Yeah, but it, it
1: is hard. It is hard.
0: And that, but that, that's like um, what they wanted. So you addressed that person's needs and you listened to them. And they Mm. wanted a discussion and they wanted their concerns addressed. And you did that. Sweet. Cool. Yeah. Done. But uh, maybe it's more our fear of like, oh shit, I didn't do any exercise. Yeah. They're not going to value my service. Correct. Depends. And then there's people that aren't really in that talking space. They're like more, I need a, like, they're fidgety and they want to move and they just want some action and some movement towards some, you know, exposure towards that movement or, um, they really want to show you that movement. That's a different kind of story, and we're not talking much at all. They they might be doing all the talking, yeah. But at least we can be like, okay, it's it's okay. The value comes from the person, not from our perceived our perception of what you know we should or shouldn't do.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: Getting off my soapbox and respecting your time, Francis. I uh, oh, no, wanted this, to. <laughs> this has been a good discussion, um, and wanted to to congrats on your. Um, graduating from the sports medicine masters to yeah, hear a little bit of what you took from that process for those who might be interested in pursuing further education.
1: Yeah. So when I came home from Kuwait, I honestly worked in a gym in Kuwait for two years, which was amazing because I got to be on the gym floor and I worked almost as a PT in many ways. It was quite different over there, which was really cool. I did a PT course over there with someone from Australia, coincidentally. Um, and I felt like I got I felt like I got so much better at exercise prescription and gym training and whatever. And over the 10 years of practice, I the soft skills I had developed so, so much more, which is so crucial. When I went to work at with Queensland Health, I spent basically spending time with physios again for three months when I'd spent time almost purely with trainers in the gym. I felt like I had lost my ability to speak physio speak. Like they would speak in these, you know, clinical terms and they'd use the proper anatomical names and pathologies and everything. And I I had gotten so good at, at speaking on a patient level that I thought, oh, I've actually, I'm not very good at speaking on a clinician level anymore. If an orthopedic surgeon wanted to meet with me, I probably wouldn't bring much to the table. I was just really conscious of it. And I I just thought, well, I think a few of them had done their masters in neurophysio. And I also was really um, uneasy about the fact I was doing so much exercise prescription back in Australia. I kind of thought maybe I needed to do a, a degree in EP. And so I looked, I sort of looked it up and I'm like, oh, maybe I need to do a masters of EP if that's possible to do it that way around. And I was just looking, and Melbourne Uni had this interesting looking course that was. Um, it was actually the masters for exercise physiologists. I can't remember what it was called. I saw that one and I was interested in it and the sports medicine one came up. And when I clicked on it, it said that it was on the pathway to getting titled as an APA, it's now called an APA sports and exercise physiotherapist. And I thought, oh, if I've got that title, I can feel comfortable doing so much exercise prescription because it has the word exercise in the title. And I knew I didn't want to do sports physio masters at UQ, which was my undergrad, because there'd be manual therapy in it. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but I am not paying money to learn more manual therapy. I'm just no no shade, but I don't want to. And I knew the sports medicine masters wouldn't have manual therapy because GPs could do it and podiatrists could do it. Um, And it was purely online, which was awesome. So it was so good. It was really just did exactly what I wanted it to. Um it it basically it's funny, like it doesn't teach you concepts. So it's not like you sit down and learn about things. It will give you a framework. So say ACL injuries. So in our, let's say maybe biomechanics subject, it might go stuff that is irrefutable, like this is what an ACL rupture is. Physically, this is what happened. So it will have information. And then it might go, say, go and read this article that describes it in detail. And then it will say, some people think that maybe a knee valgus, dynamic knee valgus increases your risk of an ACL. Here are six articles to read on this topic. And then here's a discussion board. What do you think? And that's it. And then the assignment will be something like um, bring up a case from your clinical, um, bring up a clinical case talking about whatever like one of them was i did assess the biomechanics of a squat and you could just pick anything you wanted and you talk about like considerations or injury risk or whatever or it might be through injury pathology and management subject it might be bring up a clinical case talk about how you diagnosed this person and why or how you treated them and why and back it up with evidence so it forced you to go and find all of the research to back up all of your decisions which was just so worthwhile because you're not, for me anyway, like you and like Lewis are so good at reading so much, but I just, I found, cause I was so burnt out from work and whatever. Like I really to motivate myself to read as much as I had to for uni. I didn't, I hope I will in the future and social media and your types of groups have made it way easier. Um, but I just found it forced me to read like in my end note, I've got like 400 articles in there or something. Like it just forced me to read. And I found I got so much better at arguing my points. Like if I want to back up something, I could articulate it better. I could write better. I find with patience I can quote research off the top of my head much better. Um, and even though at the end, I still like, oh, we don't know anything. Like the research, we don't know anything. I... It's like I felt that on the surface, but then I found when I actually had to explain to someone, I could kind of bring all the, maybe this, maybe this, but let's go with this option for these reasons. I could just do it so much more easily. So it was so worthwhile. It was a lot of work, but it was so worthwhile. I'm so pleased I did it.
0: It provided that opportunity to have some guidance with what to research and then you get a title afterwards as well so you feel a lot more confident with okay yeah you will get it yeah Yeah. that's cool and it's important to have that uh, space and um, maybe having some accountability and having something to work towards like a goal to help Uh facilitate that reading because it is a lot of work and yeah if you're burnt out in private practice that's the last thing you ever want to do is read research papers
1: yeah yeah and because it wasn't like promoted that much in my other jobs but now I, will. I mean I'm still recovering from the master so I have to say I haven't read a paper in like two months
0: but I will. Francis uh, we could talk for days but I really want to respect your time and I really want to thank you for sharing your experiences and, and being so open and and willing to share as well um, for the listeners who are keen to get in contact with you and find out a bit more about you and your your work where can we find you?
1: Um, So I probably post the most on Instagram. So FKB Physio and I have Facebook that is the same. And then my website, I have a fair few blogs, um, www.fkbphysio.com. And I also started my own little podcast, which again, is just FKB Physio podcast. It's only on Spotify right now.
0: Awesome. So cool. And uh, I love the patient discussion where you brought in someone to share their experience that was so insightful and I think we need more of that lived experiences out there and, and appreciate you sharing your own lived experience as well. Oh, yes. Clinicians are, we're human too. So That's there's right. a lot to learn from our experiences. Definitely. Francis, thank, thank you, you so much. Appreciate it. And until next time.
1: Thank you so much.